0: Sequence start. Space Nuts. Five, four, three, two, one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space Nuts. Astronauts
1: report it feels good. Hello again and thank you for joining us on the astronomy podcast known as Space Nuts with me, Andrew Dunkley, and joining me as always is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred.
2: <laughs> Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I'm well. Good to well. talking again.
1: Yeah, it's good to talk to you too. It seems like ages. Oh, it does. I know. It does. can't be more than a week, though, really, can it? Well, as the, as they say, a <laughs> week's a long time in politics. Uh, and, and space science. And yes. space science, yes. Yeah. Now, today, we've got a few things on the boil. We're going to talk about Elon Musk. This bloke impresses me beyond my wildest dreams. And you know, he's he's so famous now, he's doing cameos in movies. I mean, this guy is awesome. And I think he if he ran for president, he'd win. Uh, well that's that's not hard, is it? Really? No, probably not. <laughs> we we'll see what's happened in the last uh twelve months no, or so. No. <laughs> no, not going there, not going never there. Never mind. <laughs> uh we're also we're, and we're gonna talk about uh, his uh, his new spacesuit, uh which is why he's in the news at the moment. We're also gonna look at um, ESO's very large telescope interferometer. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a, and that's and what great. It,
1: and what it's up to. That, that was a lucky guess. Uh, and uh, questions from the audience. We've had a, a question from a fellow named uh, Rob Scott in Coolham in Queensland, Fred, and uh, he's, he's really keen for this answer. I think he's followed us up a couple of times. Uh, we'll tell you a trade secret, Rob. Um, we actually haven't done this for well over a month. <laughs> So that's this is our first opportunity to to answer your question. So um, let's get onto that a little later. But first, Fred, Elon Musk.
2: Indeed, Elon Musk not only uh, now famous for Tesla cars and big batteries and SpaceX, but also for entering the the future fashion world of uh, of of spacesuits yes uh, so that 's that 's why he 's been in the news recently i mean spacex is uh, is really continuing uh, in a very satisfactory way all their work on these reusable first stage rockets is going to plan, and so I think um, they are on track for their target of using their falcon rocket. To get astronauts up and down to the International Space Station within about a year. Sometime next year is when uh, they're planning the first crewed flights to uh, to the space station. Because of course today they've they've just had um, unmanned capsules which have been full of cargo and things like
1: that. But and it's and just to clarify, crewed as in C R E W E D, not. <laughs> Not crude. No,
2: well, you know, I, I I think the other word works perfectly well too. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're quite right. It's crude. I mean, it's because we can't say manned anymore. No, Andy. that's we, why.
1: And person sounds so. Person just ridiculous. sounds, yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: <laughs> anyway, um, crude capsules uh, full of hopefully not crude people uh, will be going up and down. And so, <clears throat> I guess um, the spacesuit that uh, Elon Musk unveiled a couple of weeks ago is really uh, part and parcel of that project. It's to provide uh, apparel for people who will fly on the Falcon capsule up into space. As far as I know, that's its primary use. Uh, of course, Elon Musk is also in the business of promoting space tourism, uh, and it may well be that that becomes part of uh, the uh, you know what you get when you go as a space tourist with SpaceX. You get one of these spacesuits. But the interesting thing about it is that it's not just the kind of um, you know, scientific uh, a, a masterpiece that you would expect a spacesuit to be because it's got to withstand the most arduous conditions uh, in space of, of vacuum and radiation and all the rest of it. Zero gravity, that's all all in there. Uh, that It not only does that, but
1: it looks really good as well. Oh, it's a stunning piece of engineering. <laughs> Let's call it engineering because that's what it is. That helmet, it- if you were on a motorbike with that helmet on, you'd get... A lot of double takes.
2: Yeah, you probably get booked as well. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs>
1: but But,
2: um, well, it, the, the reason is that, um, you know, it's not accidental that this thing looks sensational uh, because um, Elon Musk has hired uh, a, a, a movie costume designer. Of course he to, has. <laughs> to look at the overall shape, a man called José Fernández. And he, he apparently designed, you know, the outfits that uh, people... Uh, War on things like Spider-Man and Batman, and Wonder Woman. He designed all that, wow. and now he's designed Elon Musk man uh, or whatever <laughs> woman.
1: So the man so of this, Musk.
2: This is the Yeah, well that's right. I that could could be a winner. That mm. anyway, it, but it, it's very very stylish. Uh, you know, when you put it on, uh, it's... Well, I haven't done that, but when you put it on, it looks as though it, it, it's very purposeful. Uh, and actually, there's a lovely quote uh from uh jose fernandez and he says mr musk wanted it to look stylish it had to be practical but also needed to look great when people put this space suit on he wants them to look better than they did without it like a tux you look heroic in it what a great idea (laughs) um I mean, look. Given that the visor covers your face entirely, it's probably not that hard to look better with the spacesuit on. the point. Without it. Yes. But um, I think I think um, Mr. Fernandez's point is very much that it is um, in a different universe from. You know, the space suits that were used when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon, which were kind of related to the Michel- Michelin man.
1: Yes, advert. that's right. I, I've um, actually seen Neil Armstrong's suit close up. It was in a glass yeah. case, but I got that close to it and had a look. and... Yeah, they look rather prehistoric compared to uh, even, even the modern standard spacesuits that you that, see. That's right. Mm.
2: It, it's not the same as putting on a tux. Uh, Absolutely doesn't not. not the same classy effect. Uh, so, and um, as Elon Musk is at pains to point out when he, uh, or was when he when he released these um, images of his SpaceX spacesuit, he said it's not just a mock-up, it actually works, it's been tested.
1: And I would imagine, so, Fred, that the, that the it's not just about going into 7-Eleven and buying a T-shirt. It's it, it, These things have to, as you said, withstand some amazing conditions. But I yes. I would also suggest that the engineering that goes into a spacesuit is, uh, is pretty heavy-duty stuff. You've got to... Meet certain parameters and make sure that um, there are safety uh, issues that are that are met.
2: Of course, and um, I, and I think the reason why these things do, don't look like the old Apollo era spacesuits is because technology has moved on so much in that last fifty years or so. It's nearly fifty years. Uh, the you know there are new fabrics, new materials. New knowledge, really, about um, the uh, environment of space. Uh, it, it, all of that contributes to the ability to make something that is not just uh, functional but sensationally appealing in its appearance. So yeah. I think, um, you know, I think uh, there's going to be many um, photo opportunities for astronauts wearing these things because, of course one of the other issue one of the other uh, attributes of our modern era compared with the 1960s is that there are tv cameras everywhere so uh, inside of space ships inside the international space station everywhere so um, there are many many opportunities for uh, future astronauts wearing the spacex spacesuit to look sensational on tv
1: indeed i can see one major positive and one major negative with these suits fred <laughs> The positive is that, you know, comparing it to a tux, you don't have to use a bow tie so you don't have to learn to tie one. The negative <laughs> is Elon Musk, as powerful as he is, still wouldn't be able to wear one into a bank. Uh, no, I don't think so. No. I think
2: you, you, with these suits you have to... Uh, Choose your time and place. Uh, There are places where you could not wear one, that's true. And maybe a bank is one of them. (laughs) I think it would be, yes. Yeah.
1: All right, uh, keep an eye out for it. And, uh, gee, if the day comes where you get to wear one, lucky you. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and, of course, Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and came with a go. Space Nuts. Now Fred, we're off to a place called Antares. Uh, this is a a star that has been the focal point of the very large telescope's interferometer. and that's all I can tell you why why is this so interesting? <laughs> well it, it is I think this is one of the you
2: know one of the great stories of uh, of well certainly this week and probably last week as well in terms of the achievements that astronomers are are actually. Uh, arriving at these days so uh, let me take you back to uh, the most rudimentary kind of stargazing if you stand outside and look at the stars uh, on a dark night and you can certainly do that where you are in Dubbo mm. uh, less so in the cities of the world because of light pollution but never mind you can still usually see the odd star or so uh, what you see is is points of light and then um, when you get enthusiastic about this and tell somebody you want to have a look through a telescope you point your telescope at the stars. Let me guess. And, still and you see points of light. Points of light, yes, exactly. <laughs> That's all. And yes. even, th- even through a telescope like the Anglo-Australian Telescope, the, the biggest telescope in Australia, the one that I um, use sometimes, you look through that, you don't actually look through it, you put it on a screen, uh, but uh, what you get, points of light. And the reason for that is that stars are very, very far away. They're too far away uh, for conventional telescopes to see them as a disc, because that's what they are—they're they're actually balls of glowing gas—and mm. so if you had a big enough telescope, you would see them as a disc. Uh, just just backtracking a, a minute uh, for a minute there, Andrew. What a telescope does do is. enhances the amount of light that you see. So whilst they're still points of light, they're brighter points of light. And of course, that means that you can analyse them in different ways with a professional telescope. So um, what can we do about this? Well, there's not really that much you can do because in order to see a telescope, uh, sorry, in order to see a star, as a disk, even a a relatively big star like Antares, and it is big, I'll tell you how big in a minute, but in order to do that you would need a telescope with a mirror, and that's the main kind of image forming device in a big telescope, you need one with a mirror about 200 meters in diameter. Now the biggest telescope in the world today has a mirror rather more than 10 meters in diameter, we're on the brink of a new generation of what are called ELTs, extremely large telescopes, uh, and they will have mirrors more than 20 metres in diameter. The biggest of them actually is going to be 39.3 metres. That's a European telescope that will be in Chile. So that's big, but it's still not big enough to see uh, stars as disks. But there is a trick that you can use, and actually this is... Um, you know, beloved of radio astronomers. Radio astronomers do this sort of thing all the time because it turns out that with radio waves it's easier to do it than it is with light waves, and that's to make an array of telescopes. So instead of having something, you know, several tens of meters across, you have smaller dishes which you can combine together and synthesize a bigger dish. Uh, that's what they commonly do in radio astronomy, but less so in what we call optical astronomy, visible light astronomy, uh, the kind that, you know, normal telescopes use. Uh, There there are technical reasons why it's more difficult, but uh, this this technology has not really been exploited uh, as much as it has within the radio astronomy fraternity. So the idea of using an array of smaller telescopes uh, is... A difficult thing to do. However, mm-hmm. the astronomers and scientists of the European Southern Observatory, ESO, uh, which runs what's effectively the biggest telescope in the world, it's called the VLT, the Very Large Telescope, down there at a place called Cerro Paranal in Chile. Um, that telescope, when it was built, it, and it's actually four separate telescopes that can be combined or used separately, what the people who did, built it did was recognise that this This idea of using an array of telescopes was a possible use for the VLT. And so they built four smaller, what are called auxiliary telescopes, that are actually on track so they can move around. Um, And the whole thing becomes what in the trade is called an interferometer. And an interferometer is a machine that lets you use the wave properties of light And light, of course, light waves, uh, uh, we we know that's how light comes to us. Uh, Those properties include the idea that you can make um, light waves cancel each other out. So you add two beams of light together and you get darkness, which always seems bizarre to me, but that's what happens. It's starting to
1: sound like my darkest days in the maths room. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a bit of maths in it. Yeah. There is a bit of maths. Um, but interferometry is actually a technique. It, it is a fairly well-established technique, but it hasn't really, I don't think, yet lived up to its, uh, its full potential, or it hasn't until now, because what has now happened is that the people at ESO, the European Southern Observatory, have used the VLTI, as it's called, the Very Large Telescope Interferometer, to do these observations of the star Antares. Uh, Antares, just to give you a bit of geographical background, is the heart of the Scorpion. It's ah. uh, right there. It's a reddish star, quite bright, uh, sits in the heart of Scorpio, Scorpius the Scorpion. Uh, do you know what its name means, Andrew?
1: Antares? Yes. Um, no, I've probably oh, oh. heard it. But you know what my brain is like? It's a sieve. Uh, <laughs> but you mean you don't
2: retain useful information? Never like have. Why Ares is no. called? Well, uh, it's uh, well, let me tell you, Ares is the uh, Latin name for Mars. The planet ah. Mars. And, and anything with anti in front of it means it's kind of anti or against. And in fact, what the name means is really is rival of Mars, and that's because Antares looks a lot like Mars, and it's actually in the part of the sky where Mars passes through uh, what we call the ecliptic, the right. path of the planets. So Antares is um, uh, is a Mars-like star in terms in terms of its appearance in, in our sky. sky. Mm. But there is another connection with Mars, and that is that if Antares was where the sun is. Right. Instead yeah. of being six, uh, what is it? Five. Let me guess. Visible.
1: Let me guess. It would be big enough to touch Mars. No, actually, Mars would be inside it. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're nearly there. It's bigger than even the
2: orbit of Mars. It's actually, uh, it is more. It's bigger diameter than than uh, as I said, the orbit of Mars. It would sit between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. Wow. It's, it's, so that's big. It's one of the biggest stars known in terms of its dimensions. To be exact, it is 883 times the diameter of the Sun. Um, It's enormous. Uh, But it's also very rarefied because this is a red supergiant star. And I remember reading in an astronomy textbook when I was about 12 that red supergiant stars are nothing more than a red-hot vacuum uh, Mm -hmm. because there's there's so little material there. They are so tenuous. Um, Very, very rarefied. Uh, material in these stars. So, so
1: so is this one likely to go supernova in it, some short it, period of time perhaps?
2: It will eventually, mm.
1: um, probably not yet.
2: You know, We might have a thousand years, we might have a million years, but um, it's not something I can ask you to put in your diary yet because mm, we no. don't know. But um, it probably will wind up being a supernova. Uh, but um, it, it is, a, so what's happened is this big star uh, has now been imaged by the VLTI system, and not only that, but we 've actually been able to see detail on the surface Wow um, now if you can call it a surface because it 's really a fairly rarefied outer envelope that this star has it 's more like a nebula actually a nebula is a cloud of gas in space, mm. but it is it is a star. Um, one of the things we know about stars like this is that they do lose mass to their surroundings they lose the hydrogen gas that is the fuel of stars and so the vlti scientists have done one more thing which is a really clever trick they've used what we call the doppler effect and the doppler effect is is uh, when you break up the light of a star or a galaxy or a planet into its rainbow colors you get this barcode of information uh, on its dark lines usually um, and their position varies depending on the movement of the of the star so if you've got a star that's racing away from you all these dark lines move towards the red That's sometimes we call it the red shift um the doppler that's actually the doppler effect though and that allows you to um, measure the velocity of things like stars and galaxies and planets or uh, cl- blobs of gas within the atmosphere of a-, a star like Antares so these scientists not only have they imaged the surface of Antares they've also mapped it in terms of the turbulence within the atmosphere of Antares to try and understand why it is losing mass, which stars of this kind do. Yeah. So a really big breakthrough. I think this is terrific work. I um, I, I applaud the scientists who've done it. Uh, they're actually from uh, one of the Chilean, or the leader is from one of the Chilean universities. So it's it's very much a South American project. Terrific stuff. Yeah, it is um, indeed. And- uh, it's not too hard to find uh, images of Antares on the web. I've uh, been t- looking
1: at some as, you, as you've as you been speaking yeah. and an artist's impression of, of what it might look like with the naked eye close so up That's right, yeah. Fascinating, um, yeah. And, and, and just to finish up, Fred, this sort of uh, puts astronomers in the same, now that we can you know, see a disk of a, a, a star other than our own, uh, rather than just points of light, it puts astronomers in the same realm as fishermen. I once saw a star
2: this big. Well, yeah, the problem with stars is you're quite right. You need to see one this big because otherwise you don't
1: see it at all. Yeah, no, it's
2: good stuff.
1: More to learn from uh, Antares and probably many other stars in the future, perhaps. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here and, of course, Fred Watson.
0: Space Nuts.
1: Now, Fred, uh, we'll finish up with a a question from our entire audience, uh, that being Rob. Uh, (laughs) You know, I I always thought there's only one person who listens to this. (laughs) Well, we're not counting each other, obviously.
2: (laughs) Now we know who it is. Yes, it's Rob. (laughs) Rob
1: Scott from Coulomb has uh, written us a note. He says, hi, guys. If the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, is it faster than the expansion in the Big Bang? If not, was there some initial rapid Big Bang, as in you know, expansion, followed by a slowdown, then an accelerating expansion that we see today. Tiny mind blown, Rob, (laughs) call him Queensland. Uh, Well, well, I can't answer that, Rob, so (laughs) thanks for letting us, you know, know. But uh, Fred, any ideas? uh, Look, what Rob has said
2: uh, in his question is more or less what an astrophysicist would say. Ah. So uh, even if he thinks he's got a tiny mind, he's doing very well. extremely uh, well. Because um, that's more or less what happened. The one thing that is not the case is that the universe is, it, whilst it is expanding ever more rapidly now, it's still nowhere near as rapidly as it expanded within the first gazillionth of a second. Um, so our our model of the way the universe has uh, evolved is that yes, there was a there was a big bang. There was a creation event in which. Um, Basically, radiation, as it then was, came into being with a huge amount of energy. Mm -hmm. But um, within, and I think the figure is the first 10 to the minus 35 of a second, which, if I remember rightly, will be a one with 34 zeros and a decimal point in front of it. Tiny amount of time. Within that time, there was a phase which... We don't really understand why it kicked in, although people are trying to do that, and we don't understand why it stopped. But within that sort of time span, the universe uh, went into a a state of what you might call frantic expansion. It went from being uh, the size of a football to the size of a galaxy in about 10 to the minus 35 of a second. Good
1: grief. So, so it, um, it's just it, hard know. to contemplate. I mean, it, yeah, that's it is. just a mega amount of space. It is, and
2: that was all created within that time. Um, and we call that very brief period when the universe did this frantic expansion, we call it uh, the epoch of inflation. Uh, as you might expect, because the universe is inflating, it's nothing to do with the price of things going up. It, it's the universe getting bigger, uh, and that uh, then settled down uh, to a, a, you know, a, a steady expansion. But uh, so that period of, ex, um, of inflation was near the beginning of the universe, 13.8 billion years ago. If you now, so you, you get this. Inflation, then it settles down and starts expanding at a slightly more steady uh, rate, a more modest rate. But then about maybe six or seven billion years ago, that's when the universe is about half its present age, it starts expanding more rapidly. Mm. Uh, And this is uh, the the phenomenon that we call dark energy. It's an energy of space itself that is pushing things apart. Now, that uh, dark energy may always have been there, but its its effect on the expansion of the universe has only shown up in the last 6 or 7 billion years because uh, at that time the normal expansion has carried galaxies uh, further apart so that their gravity is not acting as a brake on the accelerated expansion so it's like the universe breaking free of of this Uh, of this slowdown due to gravity. And the expansion is indeed now accelerating, but it's still nowhere near what the inflationary expansion was. Very briefly, Andrew, just to tell you why uh, astrophysicists think that that expansion did take place in the very early history of the universe, it's because when you look at the universe, it's pretty well the same in all directions. Um, the, The parameters, you know, the physical parameters are the same effectively, apart from the fact there are galaxies and things like that dotted around. It's it's what we call isotropic. It is more or less exactly the same in all directions.
0: Mm.
2: And But the universe is very big. Uh, and so what it means is that there must have been a time when uh, when the universe was, was basically the size of a football, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Then the speed of light was no problem. Things could see each other all over the universe. So everything kind of uniformed out. Uh, but when the expansion occurred, it meant that that uniformity was preserved in the universe on the wide scale. I'm not telling this story very well. No, I understand. But, but yeah, you need, to, you need to have the inflation in order to explain this evenness of the universe all around. Otherwise, um, what you're doing is you're looking at bits of the universe
1: that would have never been in contact with one another. So, so to put it simply, if we were looking at our universe from outside,
2: yeah, it yeah. would
1: be a sphere. That's more or less. That's exactly what we expect.
2: Yeah. And not only would it be a sphere, it would be a pretty uniform sphere as well, uh, with, you know, the temperature more or less the same all the way around.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and and to to achieve that, you need this period of inflation. So it was it was actually proposed back in the nineteen, and nineteen eighties by a scientist, by the name of Mr Guth or Dr Guth G U T H, and uh, basically people have been doing tests on, you know, what we can measure on the very large scales to demonstrate that this is actually true. Uh, Now, there's no, there is no true smoking gun in this, but all the evidence is that the inflationary theory is correct, so that there was this period of rapid inflation, exactly
1: as Rob said in his question. So there you go, Rob. Hope that satisfies your curiosity and thanks for sending us your question. And we do invite questions anytime. Uh, you can do that through Facebook or Twitter or, I don't know, there's plenty of places you can send questions to us. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we welcome them with uh, open minds. Uh, now, one, uh, one more thing before I let you go, Fred. How was the eclipse? I know you went over to watch it. Ah, uh, sensational,
2: Andrew. It was uh, a great trip. Uh, I was with a... Um, with a tour group um, I often lead tour groups like this and this one was no exception uh, although I'm not really the leader it's somebody else who does all the you know all the all the grown-up stuff of taking us where we've got to go I just stand and spout about the science and sometimes the history as well Mm. but with the eclipse uh, it was very easy so we we had a beautiful vantage point on a hilltop in Jackson Hole Wyoming uh, and the sky was a bit cloudy at dawn But by 10.15, when the eclipse started, uh, it was clear. And of course, the the moon slowly covers the disk of the sun at 11.34. uh, That is when it exactly covered the disk of the sun and the sun's corona was visible. And it was just really spectacular. It was beautiful.
1: Yes. And and you sent me a photo and it's just it's a classic eclipse photo. It just looks amazing. Nice work, Fred. Well done.
2: Ah, uh, that was just the camera that did all that. I just oh, pointed it at the sky and set yeah. the zoom and away it went. Well, that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is, yeah. yeah. No, it was great. Thank you for asking. Well,
1: I, I only have to wait till 2028 to see one in my hometown here.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. I believe the path of totality goes over Shea Dunkley. Yes, right, uh, right.
1: We're right in the middle
2: of the, the path the of totality. Of yeah. So what it means is you will be able to rent out your house for three thousand dollars a night, oh. uh, and you'll have parties of people who come and want to stay there. Sounds good so to me. Pe- that's what people do on these, uh, on these, on the when they find that they're you know in the path of an eclipse. They suddenly see
1: dollar signs written everywhere. Well, it's only 11 years from now. so That's right. Yeah, Can't wait. All right, Fred, thank you so much. Nice to catch up with you again. It's a great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you too. And we'll speak again soon. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you as always for listening to our podcast Space Nuts. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and uh, you can listen to it on just about any podcast platform. And I'd also encourage you to listen to Stuart Gary's Space Time uh, podcast, which is uh, of the same, uh, same stable. So uh, catch up with uh, with Stuart. He does his in a more news. Style format. We just blabber and carry on like we know what we're talking about. Uh, Until next time, thank you again for listening to Space Nuts.
2: Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts
1: podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher, or your favorite podcast distributor.
0: This has been another quality podcast production from sites.com.